and welcome to Working It Out, the Artsland podcast, the show where we ask, does art require an audience? I'm your host, Jillian Dykeman, and my guest this week is video and installation artist, Nicole Miller. considers herself the conductor of her work and through isolating her subjects and the use of documentary form, she's able to host her audiences with very specific intentions. Please join me now for Working It Out with Nicole Miller. Yeah, so let's start this episode uh, the way that we start every episode. which is to ask, uh, Nicole, do you think that art requires an audience? Uh, <clears throat> at some point, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I personally, my work requires an audience, I think. Um, and sort of the point of the work is that it requires an audience, and so I'd have to say yes to that question. But I imagine that there are artists that... <clears throat> Um, spend most of their careers not having an artist and then uh, kind of the relevancy of it uh, opens up later on in life and so yeah it's a tricky question but for me absolutely Mm -hmm. Um, so I I would say yes. Let's talk about that commissioned work for LACMA. Um, What was the setup actually for that? Well, the education department at LACMA had Jorge Pardo build this sort of roaming pavilion that went around to nine different um, kind of neighborhoods, areas around Los Angeles and in Los Angeles. And uh, at each site, they were having these workshops for adults mostly um, and some teenagers to learn filmmaking techniques. And there was also a booth where they could film themselves telling stories. And they wanted an artist to come in and respond to each area and then bring that back to the museum uh, so that the community could kind of see themselves represented in the museum <coughs> at LACMA. And so I was, I was brought in, commissioned to make this kind of nine-part work, and I decided to make portraits of two people in each place. And so it started in San Bernardino and Redlands and ended in Inglewood and Hacienda Heights. <laughs> Um, and I decided to make two portraits of two people in each place and uh, I used the the material of people kind of leaving these stories they were filming about themselves as a kind of like archive so I would go at the end of each stay I would go through this big archive and pick two people I was kind of connecting with and uh, would go back to the town or the area and Come collaborate and make a work with uh, two people from each place, and so it ended up being an 18-piece work at the end of like the year and a half that I was working with LACMA. And uh, you know, this was tricky because I'm always very, very, very specific with the subjects that I pick for my work, um, and at times it can take years um, from the point of meeting somebody to actually realizing and making the work. And so, being commissioned for the first time, I was very nervous. Uh, I wasn't sure it was going to actually be something related to like my practice at large, but then the first one um, I saw in the archive this woman Dinda um, who had recently immigrated from Kenya 
And I researched her a little bit on the internet before meeting up with her and found that she taught this class called Laughing Yoga. She works at a home for elderly people and she uh, does this like therapeutic class where they go through these exercises and laugh for like half an hour. So she, yeah, directs these exercises. And um, so I asked her if she would just do that for me. And so I basically filmed her laughing for 10 minutes. Um, and when I brought the work back to LACMA, I showed each piece in the movie theater, at the Bing Theater. Mm-hmm. And I would have them on loop through the day. Um, and so you could walk in and out at your leisure. But the first uh, loop, there happened to be about 30, 40 little kids in the audience. And as soon as Dinda's piece came up, there was this incredible chorus of children just screaming with laughter back at her, <laughs> laughing back at them. Um, and in a way, it ended up being the most beautiful and perfect installation I'd ever been, uh, ever had. It was this because it was a very, you know, literal call and response. Yeah. And afterwards, Dina came up to me because she was in the audience and was like, that was exactly what the therapy is for. That's what it does. Um, and so this interaction between the audience and the screen is always what's important in my work. Um, and in fact, I think it's usually about that space between the audience and the screen. Um, and so the audience is part of the work and must be there. Mm-hmm. Way. Um, and so that kind of gave me the courage to move on <laughs> with the rest of the year and a half mm-hmm. and finish this project with confidence. That's really interesting what you're saying about like the work happening in that space in between basically the screen and the audience, um, especially with that work because there are these interviews and, or not interviews, rather, there are people telling their own story. And one of the questions I had about that work was, um, do you think the the telling or the showing was more important um, as far as that project went? Um, yeah, both things are important. Um, you know, it's kind of, I've been asked to do a couple of projects like this, and it's always a little bit tricky because I think I'm asked to do the sort of socially engaged work because I think that the institution or the curator or whatever is kind of assuming that um, I'm a documentary-based artist, which I wouldn't really say is so true. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a device and a tool that I use uh, to make a point um, in my work, but I'm not strictly uh, a documentarian, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I'm saying it, it sometimes takes me years, like I'll have an idea and it takes me that a couple of years to find a person that fits into this idea that I'm trying to express, and that I'm using like the document of filming them telling a story as a tool mm-hmm. um, to express that idea. Um, and so at that point, it becomes a collaboration with my subject, um, and it very much is about the telling. Um, but then sort of my fiction of coming up with this idea and searching for the person for a very long time, mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, highly being able to direct how it's installed in a space and what it's installed next to or edited with um, is almost like, like a fiction, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so both, it's a, it's a cycle, you know, both things are very important. Um, and there's a little serendipitous with this Nina piece and a lot of the other works in the LACMA 
which is called Believing is Seeing, um, uh, which was nice because it gave me a feeling that I was able to be a little more nimble than I ever assumed of myself. But yeah, I think both things are important. Uh, so what what came after that piece? Because that, that's like a year and a half long project. Mm-hmm. I had a my first solo show in a gallery, basically, in New York City. Mm-hmm. I think right after the end of the last LACMA screening. Mm-hmm. And um, it's called Koenig and Clinton. That was an interesting experience um, because I only make videos. It took me a really long time um, to figure out the whole gallery thing. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a lot of success in institutions. I've shown in museums in Europe and in Los Angeles and in New York, but... Marfa. <laughs> yeah, it's really it was been really hard to figure out like what the advantage of showing a gallery is because it's so hard to sell my work to begin with and yeah there wasn't that much interest from gallerists in Los Angeles um, but then I met Maggie and Leo at this gallery in New York and they were so enthusiastic about only showing video which was very oh. exciting and they were very supportive <laughs> and did one of the most beautiful installations I've ever done. Um, I was very happy with it. Um, so what was that work? The work was called, the or the installation was called The Borrowers, and it uh, was three different channels from three different works, and they were all installed in a triangle hanging at the end of the space. And uh, it was an old work, mm-hmm. a piece from Believing and Seeing the LACMA Project. Mm-hmm. It was Dinda. Mm-hmm. And then a new video called Anthony Aquarius. And basically it was installed <clears throat> in a way that I wanted it to feel like a coven of witches or a group of people who were each doing an action that seemed as if they were uh, trying to conjure up something or have an effect with their gestures in a way that an audience member would come in and uh, take on that gesture, be affected by that gesture, and then bring it outside of the gallery into the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so each kind of subject or character uh, was using this idea of borrowing uh, through image or performance or identity um, to kind of perform each gesture. And so you had Dean to laughing, yeah. kind of affecting, doing this therapy that's supposed to affect, you know, beyond the screen. Um, and then the new work, this work, Anthony Aquarius, was <laughs> this man that uh, I'd seen on Hollywood Boulevard years ago. Um, Mm-hmm. And he basically, since he was 14 years old, has dressed up and performed as Jimi Hendrix. Oh. Um, he, he's dedicated his life to embodying the legend, Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And when I saw him on the street, I was blown away. He was playing with his teeth and left-handed and sounds exactly like Jimi, even though he's a little bit older than when Jimi died. <laughs> So I asked him, I found, it took me years to find him again. Yeah. I, I, I lived in Hollywood, near Hollywood Boulevard, and he just never was there again. Uh, but I found him, and I asked him if he would, one, let me film him, and two, learn this song that I'm obsessed with uh, that Nina Simone made famous from the musical Hair called Ain't Got No. <laughs> and in the song, <clears throat> she is listing things that she doesn't have, like material things, and then she starts listing the things that she does have, which are her body parts, like yeah. her smile and her liver and her arms. 
And uh, <clears throat> the song is so strange now because Nina died, and so now you have this sort of disembodied voice singing about a body that doesn't exist anymore, mm. that's not with us. And I like this idea of a man <laughs> who's spent his whole life trying to embody a body that's gone, singing the song that Nina made famous, and so he learned that song and I filmed him singing it, basically. And that was the third channel of The Borrowers. What was the third one? <clears throat> the third was an older piece that first uh, was installed at the Made in LA Biennial called, it's an, an, an untitled piece, but this channel of it is called David, and it's this man that I met um, washing windows on a street corner in Pasadena. And he, <clears throat> I had been trying to find someone with a missing limb, basically, um, because I had read about this um, exercise a neurologist uh, named Ramakandran had found to help people, uh, it's a therapy that helps people get rid of phantom limbs, which can be quite painful. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I saw him, he washing windows on the street corner in Pasadena, and I came up to him and just started asking him and talking to him about this affliction of having a phantom limb. And he um, immediately kind of really wanted to talk about it because he lost his arm in the early 70s and it was in a, a very violent act, but the pain of his phantom limit constantly feels like it's stuck in a block of ice Ooh. and it ruined his life. He can't really do anything where he's focusing on using that arm. And so he was very interested and I asked him if he wanted to try doing the exercise with me and if he would let me film him. And so I brought him to my studio and we did that. <clears throat> and within the first, you know, 30 seconds of trying it, he felt move, movement in his phantom limb for the first time oh. since the 70s. And it was very awkward uh, because I think he, you know, was up for talking about it, but he didn't really realize the impact it would have. Yeah. Um, and so I didn't film that, but I asked him if I could film him telling the story of how he lost his arm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is very traumatic. Uh, it was randomly shot off at a gas station in oh. Chicago. Um, and he told it beautifully with humor um, in detail. And he was, you know, so generous. And so the video is him doing this exercise, which consists of putting a mirror where your missing limb is and looking at your existing limb in the mirror as a reflection. And your brain, <clears throat> it sort of signals that your limb is there again just by looking at the reflection um, as the missing arm. And so it has this weight, this gesture that uh, your brain really does respond to representation in a way that it reconstitutes something that's been lost, even a body part. Mm -hmm. um, and so this idea that image, I think in each example, in Dinda, Anthony Aquarius, and David, they're both trying to kind of grasp something that's been lost through an image or through a borrowed representation, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, my goal always, bring up this idea of audience, um, like I think it's important to see examples like this as people that are always viewing, always looking at image, always sort of taking on image un, uh, unconsciously. Mm -hmm. And I like this idea of maybe through looking at examples of sort of like active viewing, that one can be more self-conscious of the way that they view and be more active viewers. Yeah, you're sort of invoking a, a bodily response um, by, you know, having representations of embodiment, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah. So something that came up at the end of the last episode um, was when I spoke to Roya Akbari was um, this idea of art as therapy, and that's come up throughout the series. Um, most artists have this tendency to sort of say, well, if it's not in discourse, then then it's just therapy, and that's sort of um, how we, a lot of us, talk about it. It's just like, well, yeah, you know, that Sunday painter is whatever, it's just therapy, it's not part of art discourse or engaged art, etc. But then um, what occurs to me with your work is that, like, it's kind of, it's sort of almost embracing that potential element of work, and I mean, it, it's definitely still part of contemporary discourse and engaged and all the rest, but um, it's not afraid of that therapeutic kind of element, especially where you're in this this piece you're describing um, at Koenig and Clinton. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, where you wanted people to have a bodily response. Um, how do you think about therapy or intervention? Well... I mean, that's complicated because I feel like most sculpture is supposed to evoke a bodily response, like phenomenological response. Like I think of Donald Judd's work that way. I don't know if people talk about his work as therapeutic, but mm-hmm. uh, a sculptural experience is ostensibly that. Um, but I had that's a you know complicated question. Therapy, I don't know. Um, because I feel that like a ma- mapping out, um, a mapping out of kind of ununderstandable things mm-hmm. maybe can be explained as therapeutic, but also very intellectually complicated and necessary mm-hmm. to kind of uh, get beyond what's normal or get beyond ourselves. Um, actually, the David work with the missing limb is part of a larger installation and the second story in the work um, was of this man whose father was in a lot of films in the 40s and he was a black black man, black actor and he was cast as one of the first zombies in any film ever made um, by Jacques Chinor, this French director. and he was always in, uh, he was always cast as wild African chief, like in every Tarzan movie. Yeah. Um, and basically, the work was us going back and looking at his father's history in Hollywood, um, because his son at the time was in his fifties and had decided to become a he had decided to become a actor mm-hmm. in his fifties, basically as an attempt to reconnect with his father, because his father had died quite young. Um, and I thought, how you know, problematic and complicated to be looking at these images of your father in films in the forties, yeah. where he's cast quite horribly, you know, and stereotypically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started going through like every film I could find of him in it, and it was very depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the more we started kind of looking at his history and the history of his friends and looking at, he had this incredible archive in his house of just notes his father had taken of every actor and director he had worked with. So just like breaking down the labor of what he was doing, we found that there's a way of just like remapping the history of like Holly, of Hollywood and of black actors in Hollywood at the time mm-hmm. that became a lot more uplifting than just looking at the images. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's therapeutic. Like uh, his name is CJ, the son. 
basically was making this attempt to reconstitute his relationship with his father through Hollywood cinema. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. fascinating, but also complicated um, because of the period in time that these movies were being made. Um, and I, yeah, I find that very therapeutic being able to remap out that history for myself also as a black artist who's obsessed with the cinema and just feeling so downtrodden going through that period. It's uh, like a, you were able to look at it in a different way and like kind of own it. You were able to uncover like an alternative narrative that's not just about oppression and you know, yeah. stereotyped roles and such. So yeah, that's amazing. Teasing out this therapy thing a little bit more, kind of getting a sense of like a lot of catharsis, sort of like um, visiting these things, these sites. Um, I guess it's sort of hard to pin down what exactly it is you're visiting, but it seems like on a consistent basis, there's like almost like these ghosts that you're activating or revisiting. Is catharsis something that you think about in your work? I don't know. I feel like as a filmmaker, a video artist, that's a little tricky because yeah. it takes a real long time to make work. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, a lot of that happens in the editing process after the fact of shooting, mm-hmm. which is so technical, um, but can also feel very fluid when you're looking at footage for the first time and having sort of these aha moments that you didn't have while you were actually filming. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of takes on a life of its own. I think Brisson even said this, like the film basically is born when you write the film, it dies again when you're shooting it, and then is born again when you're editing it. Like there are these cycles of it, like you owning it, it owning you. And those are sort of cathartic moments of, yeah. you know, realizing there are things you're not in control of, right? One thing I, I do usually ask everyone is, um, at what stage in your practice do you think that you start considering audience? or where does where does audience enter your practice? From conception, yeah, <laughs> for me. Um, are you thinking about the final installation when you begin, or you're just thinking about the content? What at times, at times. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm always thinking about the position of the viewer in the work. Even I made this piece when I was in grad school um, called the Conductor. Mm-hmm. That was sort of an imagery that represented this idea of transmitting. Um, you know, when you think about the idea of a conductor, he's a performer that is uh, using a score to uh, then use his body to transmit that score that becomes music from the audience, which is the orchestra. Um, and I always try to think of my work in that way as a conductor that is a tool to transmit something specific um, that, that then can become many different things. It can become music, it can become you know a performance, it can become anything, mm-hmm. a thought or an action. Um, but when you're a conductor, it's always the performance is always to a purpose, and um, I always, from the beginning to the end, I'm thinking of it in that way. And so, without the audience, without the orchestra, it's just uh, arbitrary ridiculousness. <laughs> yeah, I mean that points to like the validating force of of an audience, right? Or the validating factor of of having an audience for for what we do as artists. Uh, yeah, by alienating that um, behavior from from its audience. Um, I looked up uh, your piece called uh, Daggering. Um, so you had in a room installed um, a video of yourself dancing um, 
it's ballet, correct? Yeah. That you're doing? And then across from that is this daggering video, which is a type of um, Caribbean dance hall mm-hmm. dance. And so as a, a viewer, I suppose, like, you can't, you can't really see them simultaneously, right? Like, you'd have to be... You can't see them simultaneously, but uh, above you in the installation is a separate sound piece. Basically, I grew up as a ballet dancer. I was trained pretty seriously until I was about 16. And um, I just quit one day. I never took another class. And then I decided to take a class for the first time about 10 years later. And that's the film of me dancing. Mm -hmm. And I started writing down stories of things that had happened to me while I was training. Mm -hmm. And I I started realizing they were all really humiliating. They're all horrible, Mm -hmm. just traumatic stories of things that had happened to me. Kind of based in, like, realizing issues about race and class and sexuality. And this, but at the time, I was kind of having these awakenings, but also understanding the social dynamics happening, but through the sort of classical dance training. And uh, I was so writing down these stories, and I had kind of a well-known voiceover actor uh, record himself reading them. Uh, and they're not, they don't say like the artist or Nicole, they're just sort of these um, third person stories. And so all of a sudden, they come on at random, very loud and booming over the whole installation. You'll have this male, very dry voice telling one of these humiliating stories that will come up over the whole space, kind of in the darkness. And so that, I think those stories unify the two images. Because daggering, you know, it's a highly, highly theatrically sexualized way of dancing, but it's usually in some way meant to be very humiliating. Um, my, a friend of mine, Scarret Boy, brought, pretty much brought over the craze from Antigua. Mm-hmm. He was the face of a band called Major Laser for a while. Mm-hmm. And his, he set up me filming there that night, but he, um, his like signature move as a, a daggering dancer was that he would bring out a big ladder on the stage, climb up the ladder, and then jump onto a woman on the ground, humping her. And I found it very interesting because it's not supposed to titillate. Like, it's not like going to a strip club. Or, even though it's so sexual, it's theatrically ridiculous um, and not really sexy. I found that aspect of it interesting. But it felt very much like my experience of being a ballet dancer, even though it's this sort of dance hall yeah. experience. Um, but, you know, yeah, that piece was about kind of being shoved into a, a character that you don't identify with and how mm-hmm. sort of traumatic that can feel. Yeah. So I wonder, like, for you, these uh, stories of the humiliation and broadcasting them, was that, was that like, therapeutic? Cathartic? Like... No, I mean, they happened to me when I was so young. I was yeah. over it. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a self-portrait. Like, there's supposed yeah. to be a lot of remove <laughs> to the yeah. story. Like, well... I don't really care about, like it being my experience and that's why my name's not in it it was just sort of mm-hmm. fodder for explaining this sort of a situation right yeah and choosing like a male actor and or voice actor and such too. yeah that helps you know? yeah and the way he's really good because he's so dry there's a lot of humor in the way that he tells stories um and he's done a couple of hollywood films um there's always this like a little bit of irony in the way that he says things which was nice <laughs> 